friends, welcome to another episode of Dream Nation Love. I'm your host, Yulia, wishing you a very happy new year. It's not the new year that we wanted, but it's the new year that we got, and at least we're in it together. It's 2022. Uh, let's see what the future brings. I'm really glad to be here with dreamers and lovers listening to podcasts and bringing you more podcasts about episodes that you care about. And I'm really excited for my guest on the first show of the new year. It's Ben Curtis. He is also known as the Dell Dude. He's a magician, an award-winning actor, uh, also a musician and a public speaker. And he's also a creation coach dedicated to creating more love, compassion, and permission to go after your dreams with abandon. Ben's been my neighbor in Williamsburg, Brooklyn for a really long time. And we've been trying to do this podcast for quite some time. It just kind of happened that his Dell campaign came back and I was like, Ben, you have to be on the show. And he was like, all right, all right, let's do it. So we did it. You probably recognize Ben as the iconic The Dell Dude from the Dell commercials in the early 2000s. Dell recently brought him back to kick off a new campaign and I'm so excited because it's literally the circle of life and it's truly magical in every sense. What most people don't know about The Dell Dude is that Ben is a really, really talented actor. He studied at the best institutions. He attended NYU's University's Tisch School of the Arts on an acting scholarship based on his audition. He also studied at Tisch's Experimental Theater Wing, both in America and Amsterdam. And he also attended the Lee Strasberg Institute and the Atlantic Theater Company. This podcast was super inspiring, and it happened right when his Dell Spots went live. Definitely check him out, and definitely reach out to Ben if you're looking for some coaching, um, especially if you're a man. He does some really awesome, awesome, awesome uh, breakthrough work that helps people get in touch with the life that they want to live. And it was really inspiring to speak about dreams past and present. Take a listen to the show, dream on, and share this episode with someone who would really appreciate it. Oh, and also, don't forget to go to Spotify. Give a five-star review to Dream Nation Love if you love this show. It's a really new thing that they've been doing. And uh, give a great review to the show if you liked it. All right. Happy New Year. Sending you a virtual hug. And uh, enjoy the show. Uh -huh, it's recording, but it's so nice to see you outside of Williamsburg. I used to run into you at Grand Morello's Diner all the time. Yes. Yeah. I loved, loved that place. That was, that was home for me. And I created a lot there. I actually started writing my Dude, You're Getting a Cell one-man show, kind of about freedom from my own suffering. And that sort of turned into my Dude, You're Getting Well podcast and book and brand that I'm about to launch. And that all started even before I knew the Dell was going to come back. I mean, this goes way back, but this has been in the works for like 10 years. What's so cool about you is both you and your partner and your baby daddy and family members, you know, are all part of my history and life as an artist and, and where all that sourced from. And moving to New York and, and we were all taking risks and really putting ourselves out there and going to the source and our paths. And I think it's no coincidence that we're here again, like, I don't know. Years 19, later. <laughs> 18 years later. <laughs> well, yeah. you know, it's so funny. When did you move to New York? How, lo how long have you been in New York for? August, 1999. So I grew up in Connecticut, so I, I was always coming into New York, but I didn't move till 2004. And I moved to Spanish Harlem. And then I kept on like going to Williamsburg because my best friend lived in Williamsburg, but I couldn't afford Williamsburg. I couldn't afford 2004 Williamsburg. 
Yeah. I mean, when I moved there, it was still, I mean, it was starting to change. Like some photographers, like fashion photographers were moving in. Like I did some model shoot in a warehouse, but it was always felt dangerous to walk down the streets. It was mostly just warehouses. And well, when I moved to Williamsburg, it was 2000 and probably two, maybe. And my friends who had moved to Bushwick were routinely getting mugged. And that was part of, you know, the the pushback from gentrification because most of these people were white. And that's when I really, you know, I wanted to live amongst other minorities in New York. That was really important to me, like a boy from the South. Like I wanted to live with other cultures. And I was so surprised at how segregated New York was. But then I learned so much about gentrification and, you know, everything about systematic stuff there. You know, I, I got arrested and I saw the system and I, you know, but just learning about that and, and the impact we have on the world was really eye-opening, especially as an artist and, and just in that place. And then Williamsburg became so white. I was like, I gotta get the fuck out of here. I know. I know. Well, it's, it's really, oh gosh, it's such an interesting convo. I had my friend, um, Kobe Kennedy on, who's an amazing artist from Williamsburg and he's been there as long as we have. And it's an interesting conversation to have because we are artists, right? So we move somewhere where there's cheap rent and then we raise up the rent. And in a way, obviously we're white, we're artists, we contribute to gentrification and we become the people that like ruin the neighborhood. So it's such a loaded conversation, right? Because it's like, where do artists go? We have nowhere to go. So we go to the affordable neighborhoods, which happen to be usually dominated by minorities. And, you know, uh, Williamsburg is such an interesting conversation too because it's so segregated. I mean, it's still segregated. You have so many different neighborhoods and it can be a whole entire discussion. And I'm going to derail if I start talking about it. And I want to focus on you mm-hmm. and your work because yeah, it's, okay. it's so funny because I grew up like watching your commercials. I grew up watching you as like the Dell kid, right? Like you were just, you were just everywhere in 2003 to 2005. Like you can turn on the TV and not see you. And then I, I became a creative director in advertising. So I started working and I started like creating brands and, and doing that. So it's like an honor to be speaking to an actual cultural icon. You are like the Pillsbury Doughboy. You are like the Maytag guy. You are, you are forever. <laughs> you're forever in cultural Dude. history. Thank you. Thank you for the acknowledgement received. Yeah, it's a lot to be responsible for and to absorb. I moved to New York because I wanted to be the source of, and you said something about artists. I want to go back to what you said, because, and this is going to segue into this, said, you know, like, we don't have anywhere to go. We have to move into affordable neighborhoods. We can't afford to go anywhere else. And then we ruin everything. There's all these things we've been programmed with. And that's, you know, that's, for those of us listening, there's two light-skinned people here, you know, that probably there's some privilege, definitely privilege associated that and we're creating that there's no place for ourselves as artists, right? So that's something we actually get to be responsible for. And that's something I really dealt with. I felt like I had to be the suffering artist. I was different. I was sensitive. You know, coming from the South, that was not cool being that sensitive and in touch with my feminine side. Like even women didn't appreciate it then. So coming to New York where there was, I put myself at risk too. We all, that was talking about risk. You know, I was a boy from Chattanooga, Tennessee, and I put myself into, you know, one of the most expensive, difficult to get into schools, you know, educationally, not to mention like, you know, GPA and auditioning and all this stuff. And I really wanted to find a place where I could thrive and where I could be myself. And I was coming from this like systematic 
Southern man place. And it was really confusing. And it was in New York where I found permission to express myself, where I found courage to go to local African-American owners who grew up in the neighborhood. I mean, I lived in a building in Washington Heights that had multiple generations of people who grew up there, including Prince was someone who used to come in the building. I found out like years ago when he was a little boy and we got to know the little boys that we heard stories about from the elders in the building who are now grown adults there. And, you know, we asked local communities like and business owners, like, what can we do? How can we contribute? And what I learned through all of this and through college and through becoming an artist is that, well, first of all, I had a lot of limiting beliefs about who I was and what was possible. And so get becoming the Dell dude and trying to understand all the opportunities I had, they, I, I couldn't comprehend it and they were terrifying. And I didn't know how to be an artist and make a lot of money and hold on to money and use money for good. You know, I thought money was bad and I had to suffer to be an artist. And it wasn't until I went into recovery that I stopped suffering and I learned I could actually thrive and there's tools to help yourself and that actually our language is so, you know, we can create the whole thing that's come together through this that you inspired me was co-creating. And I've sort of started to tag myself like a, a, a creator and a co-creator and a creation coach. So I talk about how we can co-create with our environment. How can we co-create with wherever we go? I mean, that's our job. That's why we need art in times where we're all suffering or when things are stale or there's a pandemic. We need some people to come into the community and think about the greatest art you see are people who literally come into the community like Basquiat and take what they're saying and put it up on the walls and work with people to create art. And that, you know, that's what we're doing in this podcast is like, let's come together from wherever our different worlds are and see what we have in common and can co-create. Thank you for listening so generously. I really believe in that we can, we can create anything anywhere as artists. And one of the things we need, and as anyone, is just to start asking more questions and then listening. Right? So one thing I'm doing on, I'm, I love to ask questions. I'm working on listening in spaces outside of coaching or podcasts, you know, just asking questions and listening to people around me and, and elders. So I'm really grateful to be here and, and grateful for your listening. Well, I'm really grateful for your speaking because you have a lot to share. And I was going to also add that, you know, I was just thinking as you were speaking that the pandemic has probably also affected it kind of like democratized creativity in a weird way. So now you can kind of be anywhere and you don't have to be in New York. You don't have to be in those neighborhoods and you don't have, you know, you don't have to be gentrifying <laughs> as I put it, you know, you can be creating anywhere you want, which is From anywhere in the which world, which is like, yeah. I think the opportunity for creative people is now so huge. And I hope that kind of levels that real estate. And I hope it, you know, it doesn't attribute to people being pushed out of their neighborhoods, which is awful. And, and I hope that communities can now thrive because people can have more access to the internet, which which is a bigger discussion, like who gets access to internet and how neighborhoods and schools and all that. But again, I'm derailing because I can derail for forever. Well, we talked about Dell and, you know, that's how I created it and why I came to do Dell, you know, and I was actually teaching yoga in high schools in the Bronx when this happened, when the pandemic hit. I was touring with my band. I was uh, trying to figure out what to do. Auditions were gone. You know, a lot of the work I was doing in person as a yoga teacher and healer and speaker were gone. And so we all had to out create ourselves. Every business had to get creative. So now we're all creators and we're getting to work. I work with someone daily in the Philippines and 
in Los Angeles and in Australia and in Connecticut. Their children in the background. And what's so beautiful about Zoom and your child now is that like we can work from home and have children be part of our lives running around where that used to be not okay. And we had to keep those things separate. Like now we're getting to include our families. Why hide that part of parenthood when it's like, why can't they be part of our entrepreneurship or whatever you're creating? They are, but it's it's still nice to have a little office that's a little well, further course. down. Space you can just like and healthy shut boundaries <laughs> are great, right? And we don't have to ignore it anymore. That's what I'm just saying. Like, how can we embrace those things that say, we say like, oh no, that's a, that's a boundary for me. I can't, I can't share that in my life. Right. I think it's beautiful. And who you are as a mother and what you shared with me was really inspiring. I just, I just bring it all and, and, you know, it is what it is. But, you know, speaking of kids, I was going to ask you, what was your dream as a kid? Mm. (sighs) Going back. I already know the answer, but I'm just tapping into it. I've just come from a four-hour session where I got to co-facilitate a whole innovative session for a man creating his life, and we got to dream a lot. And so I've been in this beautiful dream space, and it's it's just so wild that we're on the dream uh, cast. The (laughs) dream nation love. (laughs) So I was like, oh my god, I'm going to dream nation. This is perfect. So my dream as a child. For first, my dream was to be what I call myself uh, a pedia vet. I wanted to be a pediatrician for children and their animals so that they could come together. We didn't have to go to different spaces. But even before that, if I go a little further back, like 1984, I was four years old. I had a chance to meet David Copperfield, not only meet him, to be in one of his illusions. I believe the stage manager of the local auditorium in Chattanooga went to our church and he needed a child ahead of time. And I was perfect candidate. My dad was the preacher there. I was like a born performer, but I was deathly shy. And you know what? I was too, I was so scared. And I said, no. And we went to see David Copperfield. I remember it still, 1984, four years old. And I remember seeing, I can, I can literally describe the entire illusion from start to finish and where the other boy was, where I could have been in my place. And I was pretty crushed after that, that I said no, but it was a great lesson. And my parents gave me a magic kit. And by the time I was 13, I had started my own business as a magician. But my dream really was to be a magician. I realized I wanted to create magic inside of a tumultuous, home at times, I I saw that humor could be magic and, and magic could, could really help transform people's minds. And I started even using magic as a teenager. I had a whole illusion about my parent, like to the music of Wonder Years, the Joe Cocker song, help from my friends and like a whole visual of like my family splitting apart and a whole theatrical piece where in my dreams, my parents come back together and I realized I was working through all my family stuff and through magic. And the more I studied magic, I saw it as this incredible vehicle where you could literally create anything. So any kind of healing, any kind of transformation, any kind of dream, and these things would always come to me, speaking of dream nation, right as I was about to fall asleep, right? And we've learned now to call it our theta state brainwaves. And now I actually teach and do theta healing and know how to access theta waves through sound healing and through your own vocal work and through work with other people and yoga nidra. There's yoga 
ways you can do it. But in that theta state is where, you know, suddenly the dreams come in that like it was always be like right when I was about to fall asleep. Even as a teenager, I kept a notebook by my bed because I'd start dreaming. These delusions would just hit me and I used to shut them down and I'd hear songs and I used to just play them out. And that's still what happens today. And I've learned from one of my favorite teachers and, and really peers that I work with a lot, Daniel Tuttle, he's a healer and an intuitive. And he said, you know, that's, that's a clear audience. That's a gift. That's your intuition. And we all have intuition and we all dream in different ways. And the way I used to dream, I realized is how the gifts and why not learn to use them and talk about them? And if we don't talk about them, how, how is it ever going to be okay? I've received messages. And same thing like how I, how I hear songs as a songwriter and channel that. That's, you know, that's intuition like, to nurture that. And we all have that gift. So I realized those dreams as a child was still something that I could, you know, I still do magic to this day. I love that. And, you know, I'm intuitive too, and I don't really talk about it. And I think, you know, you can only talk about it with certain people because it really freaks people out. I do it on stage with my band. Right. I've done it. Like I'll surprise people on occasion. And what is that is actually your voice. Like one of my favorite questions when you hear something is like, who does that belong? So yeah, it was, it was to be a magician. I really, and I really believe in the power of dreaming and, and dreaming with our inner child right? Like that voice that beats you up. Like, is that your voice? Or is that some parent that used to talk to you that way? Or some old way used to tell I love that question. You know, or is that like an intuition you're getting? Should you maybe write that down or listen? It's a trip. It's like, if you really like allow yourself to listen to yourself, right? And like are responsive to it. It's really interesting what you tell yourself. <laughs> People's own intuition scares them. It's like, oh my God, how could you be that? You know, but I think to it. You know, I suppressed the song all day last week and I finally realized, oh, something's trying to come out of me. I just picked up. A, I believe we all have an intuition, it's just whatever programming or or whatever society's told you that you can't guitar. And within literally four minutes, I had a song done from start to finish. And then I went back about my day. But I was saying, no, I can't do this right now. I have to work or shouldn't or that's weird or whatever. Right. We have these amazing universe, God given, whatever you believe in, you have to focus. And, you know, if we get out of our own way, sometimes like our gifts can come through. And so getting to ask these questions, I think is a really beautiful access to that. Now, how did you learn about your intuition? You know what? My grandma was intuitive and she would have these dreams and she would be like, oh, we, I, I just dreamt that we have relatives coming that we don't know about, that we've never met. And we grew up in Russia, so we mm -hmm. didn't have phones. And like two weeks later, randomly, like some relatives would show up on the doorstep and they would mm. be like, Hey, dude, like we are your cousins. So mm. it was just like all these like things like that. And then so like my grandmother when, was clairvoyant, so she could see. Yeah. So my grandma was clairvoyant. She see things. There's like clairaudient, clairvoyant, clairsentient. I'm learning all these different things. You know, yeah. empathic is, is one of those too. My my mom does not have it. I have it, but so I'm wondering if it skips a generation. I don't know. With me, I just that uh, I like it. It can be a whole entire podcast. But I wonder like, if I, your mom. Well, can I just share an intuition I received? Yes. And I see this often. Like we skip generations. You know, you're like have these two parents are actors, and suddenly they have a kid who's a scientist, and they're like, ah, they aren't. Ah, you know. <laughs> Like my mom was a French teacher and I was like, ah, oh, French. Like by the time it came time to learn, I learned, I wanted to learn Spanish. 
then I actually learned French, but now I wish I'd learned Spanish, but it was like, French, no, you know, my dad was a minister and I was like, ah, religion, you know, but, you know, those things can Mm -hmm. actually be a gift, right? And, you know, children can be naturally, you think about the teenage phase, we can, we can be responsive and rebellious to something. And so often I've found if parents, in my experience, working with people, observing people throughout my life as an actor too, you know, I see that if a parent is like over-sexualized, like a, a, nut, a child may be like more conservative. Or if parents are more conservative, a child may want to be like more sexual, you know, in the ways that we didn't get permission. And so I see, I had an intuition that maybe your mom, like if, if her grandmother is always the intuitive one, like maybe that's not something that she wanted to tap into. You know, maybe it served her to, to go a different way. And and perhaps she has, you know, a great gift, but that could be really confronting or, or whatnot. And because you didn't have to raise and be raised directly around your grandmother, that you actually got the gift to kind of, you had a little bit more space to, to find yours again, you know, and then find out, oh, my grandmother has that too. Yeah, I don't know. Who knows? It's like, right? but I'm like, it, I think my grandma and I were more empathetic than my mom. So I'm like, I'm not surprised because I think my mom is like, she's sweet, but like on the empathy end, something just skipped a generation. There's like, so I wonder if those are related. But again, I want to come back to you. So you started a professional magic business at the age of 13. And then how did that lead you to Tish? Do you want to know the name of it? Sorry, can I tell you? First, I was called Ben Copperfield. (laughs) <laughs> and I had an assistant. It was my best friend up the street, Jordan Parker, who's still a very close friend of mine today. He was in my wedding. And then it was called If It's Magic. So it was If It's Magic, it's Ben Curtis. And I had these like black cards with like gold flashy material. And my dad would take me to Kinko's and we would like take photos and cut them out and hand make like trifold flyers that I would hand out. And it was my, I realized my dad was so creative and resourceful and supportive of me as an artist as a kid to take me to do something like that. And my mom the whole time, you know, our generation's parents, my parents' parents were raised in the uh, depression. So there, my mom really was like, be careful with your money, be intentional with your money, only spend within your means, get a real job. Always she wanted me to get a real job bagging groceries. And I was like, mom, I'm making like, $50 an hour doing magic. I'm not going to make 250 bagging groceries all day, you know? And actually I started making money doing what I love. So there was something in the permission of, you know, going after your dreams and being supported in that. And we're not always. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't always seem safe to your parents because sometimes they're not intuitive enough to see it. It takes a special parent to actually see, like dreams are so personal. So no, it's like, a personal movie, right? Not everybody can see the movie that's playing in your head. And I was going to ask you, like, how did you get from doing your business to applying to Tish? I mean, you went to so many schools. I'm like, wait, where are my notes? I got to look into it. Like you, you have an incredible acting background. It's you, you went to, you got a full scholarship to the Tish School of the Arts because they saw your audition and they were like blown away at the age of 18. So you got, Tish is a part of NYU. So for anyone listening, NYU is like the best acting program you could probably go to. It's just, it's, it's, an, it's absolutely incredible. Then you also studied, let's see, you studied the Lee Strasberg Institute and the Atlantic Theater Company. And then you were at the Tisch's Experimental Wing, both in America and Amsterdam. 
I mean, those are like some serious acting credits. You know, there's commercial work and there's and there's theater, and you have the chops to be able to do commercial work really well. You can you can play a surfer dude in the '90s. You know what I mean? Like you 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 know your type, and you can do it. So I just want to give you a shout out to your incredible acting skills because again, like my husband always talks about how amazing you are and how talented you are. And we have mutual friends that were in NYU with you together. So it's like, you know, like, I just want to give you a shout out. And I think he's so awesome and talented. Thank you so much for saying that. You know, I really appreciate that. I was, I tell so many people, it's great if you got a great degree. It's not necessarily going to make or break your audition. I don't think I've ever gotten something because I had a degree or not. But I did something because I really cared about it. And that was actually something I grappled with as a Dell guy. You know, I saw myself getting getting fame or an agent or success would take forever. And so my like summer after my sophomore year, I started sending, you know, out headshots. And I actually stayed in New York for summer. And I walked my headshots into offices and was told no or that. And actually, I started getting a couple opportunities. Some people are like, wow, this guy has some balls, you know? Yeah, I really hustled for that. And so when it happened, it happened so quickly. One of my friends, Mike Dixon at NYU, was in Stern School of Business, one of the hardest business schools to get in. But he was auditioning for commercials. And I was like, dude, you're I'm the actor here. Hook your brother up, you know? And uh, he was working with his friend's mom, who's a manager, and her name's Renata English. And now I'm, we're still working together 22 years later. But she started sending me out. It was like within a month, I, this went on the Stell commercial. I was the only kid without my mom. I was 19. The audition was 13 to 17 year olds. I just played younger. So my voice and everything, how I look, sound, feel and move was actually purposeful. It was intentional. It's a part of me. Yes. But it's also like to serve what I really felt I could bring to that role. And then when it took off, what I was so afraid of is I started noticing myself get put in all these stoner roles. And I literally thought my career was going to be over. I remember all I could think is I want to be taken seriously and I want to do Shakespeare and I want to be on Broadway. I'm a theater guy. And I and I was wrestling with it and I was working with Abrams artists on both coasts and flying to both coasts. And this incredible thing happened. This guy gave me, his wife was a big fan of mine and she was like 70 years old. And his his name was is Henry Dorman and he ran Leaders Magazine. He ran the inter, Leaders, interviewed Leaders of the World. And his wife wanted to have me at her birthday party. And he like hired me, he brought me to his office. He had his private driver pick me up in a Rolls Royce and for payment took me to get a Brioni Italian custom tux. It was like $5,000. I got like the 007 cut. I mean, it's still in my closet. I'm terrified to like even wear this thing. It's how expensive it is. But it was such a gift. And we went to the rainbow room. I share all this because that same man a year later took me out to lunch with Tony Randall before Tony Randall passed, he was in the original odd couple. And I was so I was racked with what to do at this time. And and I said, Tony, he's huge star because this guy was doing me a favor. And he said, ask Tony anything. I said, you know, I want to be I want to go to LA. I'm getting all this, but I want to be an artist. And he said, listen, if you want to be a movie star, go to LA. If you want to be an artist, stay in New York. And I was like, that's all I need to hear. Tony Randall told me, you know, so I stayed in New York and I went with theater and I didn't and I always wondered, like, oh, man, did I mess up? It's so many opportunities in, in L.A. I still have this friend. He, he tells me every month I should re-highlight my hair and move back to L.A. He's been telling me that for literally 20 years straight and go to Burning Man, which I still haven't done. You know, I just 
didn't. And there's, I had all these opportunities, but something in me just kept following, keeping me in New York. And now you can be an artist anywhere. But even being famous for the Dell thing, it was scary because I thought I couldn't use my skills. I didn't have, I had the limiting beliefs of this commercial work cannot be a true artist. And then I heard a panel with Tim Robbins, Susan Sarandon, and one other brilliant actor, Scottish older guy. I can't. One of the things that someone asked Susan Sarandon about typecasting and Yulia, I'm coming full circle here. Susan said, you know, if you get typecast for something, own it and milk it for all it's worth. Because if you're good at doing something and you're working, only 2% of entire actors out of 100% of people are working. So if you're working and you're doing something and you're get typecast, own it. But it was a little too late for me then. <laughs> and I like was arrested shortly after and it all ended and I was blackballed. And I, I kept working, but no one ever saw it for like 10 years. I actually worked more than ever. What projects did you work on? Well, right away, I booked my first lead role on a feature film. I was in an independent feature film, a psychological thriller called Spy the Movie. And I played a surveillance specialist who fell in love with this woman who was helping spy on, who was this nerdy guy who worked in the tech world. And I, I got to learn about all these spy cameras. I used my rock climbing skills to like, in the movie, I did most of my own stunts and special events, climbing up into things and walls and upside down. And I got to do a, my own fight scene on a moving flatbed truck. I was in it with Vinny Pastor, who was Big Pussy and Sopranos, Frank Vincent from Goodfellas. It's still out there. I think you can buy it on Amazon. It was shot in like HD video and that was going to try to be cool then, but it didn't quite work, you know, but it's, it's an interesting movie. I also was starting to audition for Broadway roles. I was up for the a Shane Mungit and Take Me Out on Broadway in the original and almost got that, almost got Terminator 3 as well, almost booked Party Monster, like final callbacks for all these things. 9-11 happened. I produced my own show and it was a play I'd seen in college that blew me away. And it was in response to 9-11. Americans were angry and wanted to bomb anyone that looked Arabic or Muslim or, you know, and just so much hate. And so we did this play by Israel Horowitz called Indian Wants the Bronx. He was on my podcast. Yeah, I'm friends with um, Israel. Really? And he was like my third or fourth oh my God. podcast. So if you go back in the archives, I have this amazing Whoa. podcast with Israel Horowitz. But then he had like some Me Too wow. stuff on him. So I was kind of like, do I remove it? And then I was like, no, I think I'm going to keep it up because this is a conversation that happened. And, you know, he's he is a friend of mine and I respect his work. He's my favorite playwright. So I was like, I'm just, I'm just going to leave it up. So there's a great conversation with Israel Horowitz. If you go back in the podcast and listen to it. Oh, I can't wait to hear it. I can't wait to hear it. And I had seen his work in the South and I hadn't heard of him. And I was a huge Beastie Boys fan. So his son is Adam Horowitz at Rocking Beastie Boys. And that was like super cool. And then I found out he and I both were working with Abrams Artists. So I was like, oh, my God, I get to email him personally and ask him for permission to do his play. He didn't get to see it that night, actually, for some reason. So wild. And it ran off Broadway in New York. And then we took it to the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. And it's about an Irish and a Jewish kid in the Bronx that kind of take this in, this Indian man hostage just because he doesn't speak English and he's Indian. And 
it's really intense. And we use J. David Brimmer, this fight choreographer, is directed by Bill Balzac, who I met at Strasbourg. I put together like my star team. I starred in it in Al Pacino's role. He was he actually got his breakout role as Murph off Broadway in like 1976. Yeah, I was going to say that was um, what launched Al Pacino. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And a lot of people don't know about this. And it's a beautiful, it's a powerful work of art. And it's really kind of, it's pretty messed up. And it was like, my dad was a civil rights leader as a as as he could be as a white man, gay white man in the South. And my mom's worked with refugees and, and, and in civil rights too. So I've always felt moved to do these kind of things and to speak up for minorities as well. And then just the injustice I saw. And, and we actually took this play and it did really well. And the courage for an Indian man to step in that role where he was abused night after night, you know, and the trust we built together. Karam Puri played the role and he was just phenomenal. So that was a that was another work I did. I started getting voiceover roles for Rockstar Games. I'm the voice of uh, Damon and Bully, which is now like a really famous game of theirs. I got the off Broadway role of Joy, which was about coming out during the Clinton administration and freedom of sexuality, and another off Broadway role in another part of the forest, which was Lillian Hellman's sequel to Little Foxes. So there's a lot of stuff going on. Oh, and a new commercial. I did immediately another commercial. My, my, this guy was like, hey, my kid got arrested in high school for weed. Who cares? You got arrested. Who cares for weed? Like people, like, ah, come do be our spokesperson. It was called Games and Flicks. It was a competitor of Netflix. And so I did like 10 commercials for them. They flew me to Miami and it did great. And, but a lot of people didn't see it. Oh, and I, co-produced and starred in a, a feature film opposite Richard Chamberlain and Jennifer Estivo called We Are the Hartmans. And that's on Amazon. And that's a really awesome, beautiful, fun, powerful movie about supporting local arts and music and sort of the uh, the first occupation. And Orange is the New Black and Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. That's awesome. Those are the most recent things. And now the new Dell commercials 20 years later. I love it. And Dell's, I love I'm that back. we've been like, I've been trying to figure for this podcast for a while. And I was like, I have to have been. And then this happened. I was like, this is the perfect time. And I was going to actually say that like you are a cultural icon and you literally like shifted with the times, right? It's really interesting because when you were doing Dell, you know, you got, you got arrested for cannabis, purchasing cannabis. And then, you know, the contract ended and now cannabis is legal everywhere and you're back. <laughs> and you're back yeah and i found out michael dell got arrested <laughs> in college and no one knew about it too so i'm trying oh, to get him so on great. my podcast but now. it's it's in it's so interesting because dell has advanced so much in the last you know 20 years or so as well like the whole world has advanced and to go from you know they they were getting into the personal computer space and that's what you helped them transition into because they were selling to governments and they needed somebody to kind of like represent a, a domestic face for the brand that helped like kids and their parents. You were, you were the bridge to help parents make a decision, you know, like, dude, you're getting a Dell. And now, you know, like, I love this new commercial that opens up with you in space. And that's where Dell is going, you know? So it's literally like everybody is like going on to the next level and life has changed. And it's like the circle of life. <laughs> Yeah, it was such a gift. I'm so excited to be working with Dell. It was a partnership. I always loved working with Dell and I got to meet Michael Dell a long time ago and they treated me really well. And it was 
you know, as I was frustrated that that the way it affected my career, you know, but at the same time, they had a no drug policy. And it was for all their employees. And it was illegal back then. And that's a shame, right? It's something that a lot of college students go through. And I wasn't dealing or trying to do anything bad. I will quote my my father and that I got arrested in style in a kilt with no underwear, which most people don't know. Because my Scottish girlfriend was visiting and my best friend's, it was my best friend Rob Signum's birthday and he had his kilt as well. And that was just <laughs> wild. And that kept me out of a shared cell for a while. So my other friend brought me pants and underwear. Then I started getting taunted by police officers and then... I befriended a heroin addict coming off of heroin who told me all about his son who was my age. And he had a really amazing wake up call in front of me with me. And that got me starting to think about the play. And that's how I started writing, dude, you're getting a cell. And I just kept getting in my own way. I got arrested two more times that the public don't know about. I had a DUI, I had PTSD from 9-11, which was in the middle of the Dell campaign. So I lived in ground zero. Yeah. Yeah. And it was a lot to process at that age, including the fame, including the money, including the, it, it just, yeah, it really messed me up. I, I, the trauma, especially from that and being undiagnosed and, and then getting like really my addiction and alcoholism flared up. I didn't know I had that stuff and it was really, I wanted help. I always asked for help, but to really turn my life around. And those were some dark places to get out of. And it took like 10 years, but writing about it and starting to do that play and that healing process, I realized, and actually I went to this coaching program at Landmark Education and and Landmark does a lot of like personal growth and development workshops and courses. And it, it really gave me some amazing tools. And one of the tools I got in the sphere exercise that I still use to this day and I teach is you know, you get to release something and talk about your story that, you know, and I realized I used to share like I'm a victim of 9-11 as a badge of honor. Almost every interview, I'd start with that. And the reason I bring it up now is because I was carrying all that weight with me and all that trauma and pain. And I thought I had to suffer as an artist and that I had to wear that. But someone actually, a coach in that in that room, in that space, in that time said, do you want to like let go of this? And I'd even, I didn't even know how, but they gave me permission. And... It took a few tries, but suddenly I started to let go and a whole new world opened up and I started. And as I got sober, I started to see like, you know, I was at Landmark and they were talking about integrity every day. And I was like, oh, my God, I'm putting a lot of alcohol in my body. And, you know, I'm a yogi and a runner. Like, look at how I'm poisoning myself, literally, and the amount of weed I'm smoking and cigarettes sometimes. And like, it just didn't like it was such a missing. It was so weird. And so I brought that integrity conversation. And then I got sober and I couldn't write at all. And my relationships were ending and changing and I felt blocked. And then suddenly something started to happen and something blossomed inside of me. And I started to feel so free, like broke free of gender and sexuality. And the woman who is now my wife came into my life and I started writing music more than ever and creating more than ever. And and working more than ever and, and rediscovering and redefining myself. And now I'm helping other people do the same. And I realized there's just tools and it's all willing to, it was a freedom from suffering. And so I realized I'd been suffering and I was the only person in my way of that the whole time and that it can be a choice. And, and once you have the tools and access to that, 
there's so much freedom that can come and it, it can take time, right? We have this like program suffering as humans and, you know, they even talk about what is it, white fragility and things like ways we try to suffer to be martyrs and it's just not cute or cool. It's like victim and like you can get clear and free of that and a coach helped me do that and people have helped me crush those beliefs as an artist and it's really helped me thrive and so now I want to give all those gifts away to other people and share about this you know unapologetically well you know it's also like it's almost like going to acting school right like if you've never gone to acting school like you know how everybody always cries in acting class like somebody there's always somebody crying in acting class because something triggers them and and it well, and it's designed to be a safe space where you can cry and work through that and let that out, right? True. Yes. Thank you for pointing that out too. But it's but it's a place that like if, if you've never entered acting class for like six months, I don't mean just for the day where, you know, there are these transformational workshops for the day. They can do a lot of great work. But if you really Oh my God. If everyone took an acting if course If everybody took an acting course and let their and emotions if break, every American had to yes. wait tables for two years. Just like, you know, instead of yes. joining the army, like we all to be in the service industry. Oh my God, right? I think just dealing with people and, and also like doing improv. I think improv is amazing for companies and, and, and people oh, yeah. just being able to connect with people, being able to collaborate with people, right? Go Going back to co-creating, right? And you have to listen. Listen. You have to listen. You, you get to add. It's a yes and conversation. It's not a no, but... It's a, you get to add value to each other and it's a positive affirming practice. And you learn to like respect other people besides yourself. Imagine that. Imagine, imagine that. So I'm always like, because, you know, like I go into different companies, I'm a freelance creative director, but I I studied acting for like eight years, like Meisner and stuff like that. So, and I studied improv and, um, you know, you go in and you see the same archetypes playing over and over again. You go into companies and you see the same dynamics playing out in the teams. The people's faces change. But you have the same issues coming up, like, okay, this team isn't working well. What's, you know, okay, somebody's blockage in in some way. But I'm like, oh, if I can give you the gift of just like releasing, the releasing the ego, the work will get better. Like, just let go. Instead of trying to grasp, let go, let go. And that's when the magic happens. And, uh, And I love that, that you're doing that as a life coach and helping people manifest your dreams. Well, now I'm calling myself a creation coach. I think life coach has this. You know, I wanted to recontextualize life coaches is great, but you know, it is all life, but it's, it's really a creation and it's all in relationships. So now I'm a creation coach because you can create anything and you can outcreate yourself. It's so true. And if you can create it and think about it, you can dream it. I called myself a dream maker coach for a while too. I thought that was maybe a bit audacious or something, you know, or like presumptive, but I, you know, why not? I just said, I started declaring things. I just try things on. Like, what sounds great? What lights me up? What would be exceptional, you know, I think to provide to people and could your dreams that you love be true? You know, there's so many, we, we eat so much. We, God, we're the first ones to poop all over our dreams. And oftentimes it's to try to stay safe or fit into some box that we think is going to provide safety and validation. And it's all made up just like money. It's just something we agree on. It's a piece of paper, energy now. It's true. I used to have an acting coach named Dina Levy. And she was like one of these amazing coaches that like, if you're starting out, you go with her and her classes. And she used to have this line that said, you are your own prisoner. And that always stuck with me, right? Because it's like, you're getting in your own way. You're your own prisoner. 
that's what dude you're getting a cell was about that like what if the cell was unlocked the whole time you're the only person keeping yourself inside all you have to do is step out and if you don't have the keys like let me give you some Lots of different ones. Just imagine a key and it appears. (laughs) If you imagine things, they kind of appear. And like, I know I sound crazy when I talk about them, but like once you imagine, they might not appear right away. They might take six months. They might take 10 years, but they appear. And it's like, if you can see it, it can come true. Mm. That's manifestation work. And that's what I call it. And it's something I teach. And it's actually, I have a free manifestation meditation and exercise. It's like five minutes or less, I believe on my YouTube and in all my things like my link tree and Instagram, I give it away all the time. So if you ever join my mailing list, you get it. So just want to share this because it's been so freely sharing with me. And to me, whether you believe it or not, let's talk about it as a law of science. And if matter is neither created nor destroyed, and you can envision it, then you can literally create it. You can cause it. If you take one action, that action has a reaction. And if that action is starting to think of and imagine it, what you're literally doing is putting your body into meditation, maybe some close to a theta brainwave state. And you're actually, your your consciousness doesn't really know the difference between that which you dream and manifest and meditate on and what's actually happening. That's why sometimes our dreams can, can you know, distort our reality and vice versa. So if you can dream that, Yulia, you're right. I believe that actually you create the access for it to happen. And it's the part of you, consider if, you, if you're listening and there's something that you want that you don't have, ask yourself, you know, is there any part of you that's unwilling to receive it and why? Is there, is there something, are you, because maybe you're actually in the way, maybe there's some limiting belief you have about yourself. Like if you want to be a million, be a millionaire, right? Or have a million dollars. Like, have you ever thought about what that would actually feel like? How would you use that energy of money? And it wouldn't just be something you flaunt, like a million dollars can actually go really quickly. So maybe how would you invest it? What would it look like? Who could profit from it? Or how would that feel and inviting the positive energy in. And suddenly you're literally creating dopamine every time you think about money rather than stress and the chemical for stress, cortisol. And, and you know, you're creating dopamine instead of cortisol. You're creating the thing that's going to have you thrive instead of kill you, right? I'm just a big advocate of it's. it sounds like if it sounds woo-woo to you that it's actually pure science and, and we can prove it now thanks to like, all the studies and research we've done. But if you believe in metaphysics and and life and and law and or divinity or God or whatever, like, you know, there's there's accesses to and everything intuition. in the universe. And what if the universe and is always working right? in your favor? Yeah, and intuition, which you can ask to have. You're like, oh, I'm not intuitive. Really? Have you ever like asked and, and started to listen to your own intuition or ask questions about your intuition or ask someone who helps people through intuition, you know, like some of the work I do to, to help guide you. You know, there's tools to access this. Everyone's a beautiful creature with so many gifts that you can unlock. And you also have a section on your site about like transforming your depression into joy, which I think is so fabulous too, because it's about giving yourself permission. I mean, once, okay, you also start talking about like, you can dip into like chemicals and chemical imbalances and stuff like that. And that's, that, that goes into like a different territory, but you know, 
with just being in a funk sometimes, especially as a creative, you know, as a creative, we have a lot of different emotions, a lot of mood swings. I think it's so important to help people bring more joy into their life. And I was going to ask you to like maybe expand on it a little bit more. Like, you know, what are some tools that you give people who might be going through a rough patch who can't seem to find that joy? So I'll give you specific tools. And I want to say something. I want to clarify something you said, tease it out about like, you know, well, yeah, you can have chemical stuff or, you know, like mental illness or something. That's a whole nother thing. But actually, a lot of my clients have been diagnosed with some type of mental illness or disorder. A lot of creatives have been. I had a teacher, an art teacher. I was diagnosed ADD at some age and he was ADD and I was sharing with him and he was like, you know, I think everyone should take medicine to be like us because we're the most creative people. You know, in this energy, and I heard a recent thing with Dave Grohl, and they're like, "What's wrong with you that you had to drum?" And he was like, "Nothing. My childhood was fine. I just had energy, and it needed." And I was a horrible student, but there was nothing wrong with me. My my learning ability was through this different language, and and it didn't look like a school structure have to sit at a test, which is a very specific style of learning. Which, aka, most by the way, most of us don't have. That's a very specific way of human you know, they created testing and it actually is not always effective or correct. And so he learned he had this other gift that was music and he could speak the language through that. And then he thrived. His mom was actually a school teacher and he was the worst student there. So there's all these things like, where are we not giving ourselves permission and, and learning to honor our own gifts and think outside the box? I've dealt, I have four generations on both sides of my family of clinical depression. So I talk about it. My dad is a survivor of sexual abuse. And I guess, you know, you want to say like physical abuse too through like, you know, corporal punishment and how he used to punish kids and stuff with beatings and switches and sticks and things. And he didn't realize that he was also a gay man and really closeted through that and suppressed and loved, you know, my mother and and the family, but it's a part of himself that he had killed off that he got to live later in life. And my mom's father committed suicide. My parents were in therapy and on medication. And I was, I was in therapy growing up, you know, it was like, I just always talked about these things and, and we can have chemical dependencies, but the one or, or it differences, but the one thing that works with every single person I work. So here comes the tools, no matter who you are, whether you have a background of that or not, by the way, through the pandemic, we have all connected for the first time in the entire world together. Whether you're aware of it or not, chances are you have been in the past, currently, or will be involved with some kind of grief as your life has changed and as processes have changed. Even if your life is thriving, the world is changing and things have died off. And it's important to give ourselves space and time to grieve. And if those funks are there to listen to them, to not make them wrong and push them down and try to push through work, to actually ask, what is this here to teach me? Am I nurturing this? Do I have tools to take care of myself on a daily basis? Many of us do not. And actually, especially men, which is who I end up working with a lot of the time, because women have been given more permission to go to each other and hold each other and be vulnerable to each other and give each other tools. And men are not, we're still not even talking about our own pain and relationships. And I, I even include that myself. I, I say this out loud to continue to hold myself accountable. So the tools that work are authenticity. And just being and vulnerability, right? And with those two come courage. So that doesn't mean the absence of fear, it just means having fear and taking action anyway. That could be asking for help is such a powerful, amazing tool. And consider that if you ask for help, 
that you're giving someone else the opportunity to be of service to you. And that may give them such an amazing gift. Think about all the people you help on a daily basis. And maybe when's the last time you asked someone to contribute to you? Are you one of those people who are like, no, 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 no. You know, that gets annoying. People actually want to contribute to you. So you can ask for that. People love to give advice. Are you kidding me? You want advice? You post something like on Facebook, you ask advice, you get like 10 million answers. People love to give advice. I was saying that, you know, becoming a mom has made me vulnerable because I've always been like, I've been an only child. I'm always like, I've been working since I was 14. I'm very self-independent, like doing my own thing. Boom, boom, boom. Never asked for help. And then having a baby just completely. Well, that's probably what this nature in which you had to survive, right? You had to not ask for help in order to survive. Yeah. So it was just like, okay, I've been on my own. Condition that made you be a loner. And then it's like, and that's worked for you. And then you have a baby and then you're like, oh, I, I need like, a whole entire ecosystem. Like I can't raise a baby on my own. I need like, I need my mom. I need my husband. I need like everybody. So it's been like, it's been a humbling lesson in humility because I was like, I'm a creative director. How hard can raising a baby be? I've done so many hard things before. And I'm like, holy, holy hell, I was unprepared. And if you had to, well, consider that you are prepared in some way. I mean, none of us are ever, I've never heard a parent say they were fully prepared for what. Right. Yeah. So I have a lot of sympathy for that. It sounds like it was humbling. And Ilya, consider that you could have, you said I could have never done it on my own. I bet if you had to, you absolutely could have survived as a single mom. You know, your body would have figured it out. Your brain would have figured it out. You would have done anything to protect your child and keep it safe and ask for help. It sounds like. And and that sounds like something you really did and you're able to lean on your community and ask for community and say, you know, I don't want to do this alone, you know, and I don't have to. So I want to acknowledge you for that. Yeah, it's it's a, it's an interesting step because it's like, oh, the, like now I'm in a new role. Okay, all right, cool. But I, I don't want to focus on me. This isn't about me. It's about you. Well, it's about all of us. So I, I just want to reflect that on you because if for anyone who's listening, who's a mom, you know, or a dad or whomever to know about this. And that's okay to ask for help. So that's what I was talking about. The other tool is to get out of your head and into action. So there's a great, great quote I love. You can't think your way into right action. You can only act your way into right thinking. So if your thinking is distorted or not serving you, if it's down, it's low, it's dark, you can take one action. That action, if you're always used to taking an action, whether it's to eat something or to drink something or to watch something or to, you know, if it's to drink, it's if it's like to, to numb out, like maybe your action is to not take an action, right? Maybe it's not to pick up your phone right away. Maybe it's not to look at porn tonight. Maybe it's not to go comfort eat or shop. Maybe it's just to sit with that feeling. That's an action. Yeah. And if you're used to sitting in it and you have, you know, I have a lot of clients who have really intense negative thought loops that they feel stuck in, especially those who lean more towards like bipolarity and the, and those thought processes or things we're told are disorders is actually like these these incredible brains that do amazing things. Like, you know, if you get caught in those loops, the greatest interrupter is is action. So one of the things that I've done my entire life well is move my body. You know, I was a hyperactive kid. I had to, but my mom did a great thing. She would just be like, oh, go outside. I'd be like, ah. she's like, I don't care. She would just start to push me out. 
And then even sure enough, when I got sober in my mid-20s and I would have these freakouts and panic attacks, I'm like, what's going on? Turns out I just had energy and my dad would yell at me when I'd come to visit. I'd be like, I don't know what's wrong. He's like, because you need to get the fuck outside. You know, and sure enough, I'd go for a run and I'd come back and be like, Dad, you won't believe it. I feel amazing. I had all these good ideas. He's like, yeah, 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 I know, I know. And it's one, even I, it was a built-in forgetter. But when I would drink too much or have be really hungover, my anxiety would be super bad. And, and even my friend who I used to drink with, one of the things I did really well is we would call each other when one of us were having a panic attack. He lived down the road in Williamsburg and we'd just go run. We'd run to McCarran Park. We'd play tennis. Even if we were smoking weed and freaking out, we'd move. Like we'd play tennis Wii inside in the winter, like on the on the Nintendo. And, and we'd just move our bodies and sweating is a great thing. So anything to get your heart rate up and to sweat, cold shower is an amazing thing. I take a cold shower every single morning for at least 30 seconds or more because I learned that watching uh, Gwyneth Paltrow on Goop talking about Wim Hof and being out in the cold. And I heard a mom say that she had panic attacks every day. And this was at the right before the pandemic started. We were in January 20. 20, my God. And I was terrified and I was really struggling with sobriety. I was really struggling with anxiety and depression. And she said, you know, I just started taking a cold bath for two minutes a day and my, literally my panic attack stopped. I I can't remember the last time I had one. I was like, what the hell? Like I've heard of a lot of stuff, but like really, and it's, it's simple exposure therapy. It's science. You expose your body to stress and shock and over time, now my body craves a cold shower sometimes. It's weird. And I still take a hot one, but I just make my last 30 seconds that. And I breathe and I use it as a chance to like get really in my breath. And so all these tools I give to my clients and then simple ex- exercises to interrupt it. So if you watch my YouTube video, it's like a one or two minute exercise on on how to create more joy in your life or turn your depression around in 60 seconds or less. And it's literally an exercise of, uh, it's a check-in inventory. It's a SAC security approval control. So I just think of, like I said, a timer three times a day and when I'm doing it, having a hard time. And, and at those times I ask myself, do I feel secure right now? Am I safe? Am I actually safe? Yes, okay, or no, I don't know. Approval, am I loving or approving of myself right now? No. Wow. How could I be more loving? Let's look at that. And control. Am I in control of everything I, I could be in control of right now? Yes or no. And maybe like, do I need to go out and run? Do I need to just like get some work done? Do I need to just accept that I'm not in control and surrender? And then the last one is celebrate. No matter what you do, the biggest thing I have is just like jump up and down and celebrate the awareness. And it's weird. And it's like, whoa, and how many adults have a hard time celebrating? I'm like, they're like, whoa, yeah. And I'm like, yell. They're like, I can't. My family. I'm like, your family? Oh, God forbid your family hears you happy. You know, like you're trying to teach your kids to never express joy fully. Like what the hell? So if you get in your body and you stand up, okay, I'm doing all this to lead by example, but it's literally you reprogram your brain. My whole nervous system has changed and you literally start to choose joy and you reprogram your brain. My coach made me skip and giggle for five minutes a day, every day for a week. And by the end of the week, I couldn't even think about giggling without naturally giggling. And my nervous system changed. My depression turned around. My anxiety lessened. 
And I give this to everyone, including like soldiers with PTSD. You know, you can rethink your brain. Your brain has neuroplasticity. And so there's all these different great ways. So I have so many tools that I give away to people. The greatest tools are one, movement out of your head into action. Two, acceptance or compassion. Three, practice. Practice choosing joy. Practice writing gratitude lists. Practice taking a shower. Practice speaking kindly to yourself. And then four, ask for help. And you can ask a friend to hold you accountable, like to check in. Hey, how are you talking to yourself today? You know, to call you or text each other, hold some accountability to do what you love. Ask someone to support you. Someone else could use some support too. Picking up the phone again and asking for help is one of the greatest acts of courage and service and self-love. And you deserve to be loved and have these tools. I love that. That is such a great message. And I was going to ask you the final question, which is, what is your dream as an It would be to be known as a founder of the modern masculinity movement. Is that the Lion's Den? It's a program on your The Lion's Den is a program, but my dream as an adult is to be known as a founder of the new modern masculinity movement. I just created that from nothing inspired by other men, but that's, I'm rebranding right now. And I just, the word that's kept coming to my head is a movement. And I have a, a, a weekly podcast called Divine Masculine Mondays, which I'm going to be turning into the dude show and which women are also going to be on. We're going to talk about masculinity and redefining masculinity. I teach workshops monthly and upon request called the Renaissance Men, where I teach men different ways of being men, permission to take the lid off. I'm also teaching a, a something called Humanity. And it's for women to work with things around masculinity as well and support more conversations and spaces for vulnerability. And how I'd like to see that expressed is that, you know, somehow in statistics, I can figure out that I've saved 10,000 men from committing suicide this year. Men still have the highest rate of suicide because of not having access to these tools. And that's why I'm starting my podcast, Dude, You're Getting Well. It's not just to interview men, but it's just to talk to people who we look up to, who we aspire to, you know, like great prolific artists and uh, musicians, actors, CEOs, entrepreneurs, investors, you know, founders, leaders of of civil rights and, and, and everything about their challenges internally or mentally along the way uncover mental health, emotional struggles that we all deal with, and also to see how they take care of themselves as they grow their empire or as they grow their dreams. And I really live my dream and I want to help other people do the same. And I want to be known as someone who helps redefine what masculinity means. It's not even about men anymore. I don't even want to use gender, but it's about creating new spaces for leadership and that masculinity could also include the feminine. And how can we make more spaces for women to, for people who feel like they have to be masculine in order to work in this world? Like, how can we marry the two? Or non-binary or woman X or whatever. Right. Well, I say masculine, feminine, because I believe we all have those energies inside of us. It's like our yin yang, our dark and light. Our dark is, is our darkness is so important and beautiful. 
Like, can we not hide from that? You know, the other thing is like one of those action things you can do of the now a fifth thing, you know, about like writing and creating. I mean, that's an action. But if you have darkness, like talk about it, write about it, share about it. You'll find, you know, I have, I really have clients that are so afraid to share their work about their struggles, but I know like as soon as they do, it's going to help so many people and they're going to receive all the affirmation and validation they've been afraid of because it's that like, oh, what if I'm not received, right? Artists deal with that. Entrepreneurs deal, deal with that. Like, what if this like falls on deaf ears? What if no one invests in this? What if this doesn't take off? What if I can't do it? What if I can't be a mom, right? But are we willing to, to ask, like, how can we make it happen? Can we do that to the, together? And can we create more spaces for people to lead and be self-expressed however they want and however that looks like? And just make more... I believe we can unlock all of this key is through vulnerability and, and honesty. You know, if you can talk about how you're feeling, you may be giving yourself and someone else a gift because all people have complex feelings and we all deserve to know how to love ourselves. And, and that's the greatest gift we could ever give any partner and, or any relationship. We're all in relationship. Even if you're not in a relationship, consider that you're in a relationship with everyone, you know, and the person that delivers your mail and your landlord or <laughs> all that stuff. He's getting a Christmas gift from me. I'm getting I'm getting Brandon a little gift. It's, it's like, you know, like going back to old neighborhoods and like knowing people and like having interactions and like having connections with people. One thing my dad taught me is great. And my mom too. They've both been bullied, but my dad, especially That's being a like a sensitive man attracted to other men in the South in the 1940s in Memphis, Tennessee. He said, you know, together, right? It's oh my so God. So much to talk yes. about. I'm like, I haven't been dipping yeah. into it because it's like, it's just, it's, <laughs> it's another podcast. Well, I'm sharing about it along the way because my dad's my, he was my best friend and still is. I carry him with me and he passed away this year while I was leading mm-hmm. the lion's den, my first men's group. I'm and it's so amazing because I really lead. Thank you. But I, I've become a leader of that and vulnerability and heart because of him because I had a father who said it's okay to be sensitive and I had a mother who said it's okay to be sensitive. That was awesome. When women were in my own life were not telling me it was okay to be sensitive. We spend most of our time at school, you know, with our peers that are toxic as F and, you know, and even our parents can be, our home lives can be toxic. So I realized I had a really extraordinary, uh, extraordinary experience as a child with parents like that who nurtured vulnerability in me and a father that led. So when my father passed away, these men in the program, it's the only thing I could show up for was my lion's den, which is the 10 week program for 10 men. It's a safe space where men can help each other take the arrows out, take the armor off and redefine, re-empowered, reprogram ourselves for more love, compassion, vulnerability, abundance, and freedom. And uh, these men ended up carrying me that week. And I was able to show up to lead them while my dad was passing away. And that's also why I'm able to still lead today. You know, I tap into that source and that energy and I allowed my heart break to actually, I allowed my heart break to allow my heart to open. And I've continued to share about my grief publicly. I learned how to cope with it in a healthy way and share those tools. I learned to share about my anxiety and how I cope with that publicly. 
So I think, you know, the more we talk about it, the more we give other people permission to do the same. And to dream, right? And to dream. To just let and, let yourself feel yeah. and, and and let yourself have feelings. That's why I'm so excited about this. You're such a generous spirit and energy. And I find myself just speaking so freely and, and and at length because I feel very seen and heard and safe and loved. And, you know, it didn't happen then, but we're like revisiting and to see people doing what they love and raising a family proudly. And, and for a mom, you know, to be, for you to lead it in the way you do for women. It's a safe space for someone to just like tune in, you know, like it's in the privacy of your earbuds. You just listen to a conversation or you can like share it to a friend or you can just come on the podcast and share it. And Ben, I was going to say, you're always welcome on the show. Like I know you and I can talk for hours and there's so much more that we haven't talked about. So you're always welcome. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. I know we talked for like an hour and we had some technical difficulties, but thank you so much for all the work that you're doing. And I'm so excited for everything. Thank you. And I want to have you on my show. So you'll be hearing from me soon. Awesome. I loved it. I could talk with you all day, literally. So thank you for being such a generous listener. And I really hope that I've made a difference for someone. I would love to know. I could just put this out there. You can follow me on Ben Curtis Official. Like, look me up anywhere. I really welcome, I try to communicate with everyone who reaches out to me. I do my best to do that. And I, I have a lot of opportunities just to put out love and, and I'll be look out for the Dude You're Getting Well podcast. And if something resonated here, please share it with someone. Please let us know and share it with someone who you think it could make a difference for, or if it, or if it made value for you, because that's, that's really what helps heal the world is sharing the medicine that's helped us. So Yulia, I, I really appreciate you sharing your time. It's all, it's all one family, right? It's all one family. Yeah. Thank you so much, Ben. Thank you for being on the show. And uh, we'll keep in touch. I think my baby's like wiling out. I gotta go. Cause she's like, <laughs> she's like, Wait, I gotta go. But yeah, thank you so much for being on the show. I really appreciate it. And I love speaking with you. So have a wonderful day and keep in touch. Same here. Yeah, please stay in touch. Take care. Good night. Bye. Bye, Ben. Good night. Thanks for tuning into the show. I hope you enjoyed it. Please share it on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Dream Nation Love. It's not Dream Nation Podcast. It's Dream Nation Love because I think my single mission in life is to teach people how to love a little bit more and together we can save the world so it's dream nation love share it with your friends have a great day and go out and make the world a better place